If you notice on the screen, our series slide, we've been putting this up every week. What you hope for shapes what you live for. And that theme, of course, is applicable to the entire book. I've been referencing it over and over again. That theme of hope is a, is a key one in the book of First Thessalonians. But I want to say that it has a strong mooring in today's pa- passage. What you hope for shapes what you live for. So Father, we ask you to come and to speak to us now through your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would come in power to remind us who we are in Christ and to compel us to live like it. Father, make us like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Are you there? I'm going to read the first 11 verses. We're keying in on verses 4 through 11 today, but I want to give you the entire context again as Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church about the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord, this future event, the day of judgment that they have so many questions about. And he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation." For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. I had a conversation recently with someone who asked me a a question. They said, okay, if you could know, if you could choose to know either how you're going to die or when you're going to die, which would you choose to know? It's a pretty thought-provoking question, right? Gosh, either how or when. And she answered her own question before I had a chance to to give it a stab. And she said, I would want to know when, but not how. And so I sat there trying to evaluate her answer, kind of think, weighing that out. Okay, I, like I get not knowing, not wanting to know how, <laughs> right? Um, but, but, but what are the pros and the cons of knowing when? And I was weighing that out, and there's some, right? But then as I was doing that, it, it just kind of affirmed to me more and more my initial gut reaction that was, it was right, at least the way I would answer, and it's this, I don't want to know either. Right? 
I don't want to know either. Why? Because it would completely alter my life. I would always be thinking about it, right? Uh, it would consume my thoughts. It would, it would affect the way I make plans. It would affect, you know, if, if, if I knew how I was going to die, let's say it was, you're going to die in a car accident. I'm never getting in a car. Or I'm always thinking about it every time I'm in a car, right? Or, or if you knew it was going to be that you're going to get sick, you're going to have a certain kind of disease, maybe a, a particular kind of cancer. And, and so you're always going to be thinking about, okay, you know, I'm reading labels now, right? Is this going to cause that? It would, it would consume me. Every act, every decision, every thought. So I wouldn't want to know. And so as I was thinking about that, because I have been thinking about that, it's a very thought-provoking question. At the same time, I was reading our passage this week in preparation for the sermon, and I realized something, that, that as believers, in a sense, we do know how we're going to die. We don't know when, right? Paul makes that clear. He says here, you, you know, you, I don't need to tell you, you know. It's, it's not something you're going to figure out. It's going to come like a thief in the night. It's interesting that earlier, just, just uh, what, today's the 15th? So this is four days ago, April 11th, another article came out. It was all across the national news. Biblical prophecy claims the rapture is coming April 23rd. There's this numerologist who's got it all figured out. He's, 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 he's aligned the planets. It has something to do with this thing called Planet X, also known as, as, as Nibiru. And it's supposed to line up in such a way that according to the Bible, clearly shows that on April 23rd, it's over. Um, despite the fact that NASA repeatedly has said that Planet X, the whole idea of that is a hoax. Right? <laughs> We don't know when. And in, in a lot of ways, we don't know how. We don't know the specifics of how. You and I don't know that, most of us. But in a sense, we know how, in that we know what happens when we die. And there's we, one of the big fears, of course, about, about death and the, and the knowledge of when it, it's coming, and the fact is it's coming for all of us, is to know, well, then what's going to happen? Like the, the, the scary thing about death is, is perhaps not knowing what comes next. Is there something that comes next? Or, and is it going to be good for me? But as believers, we know the answer to that question. And that knowledge will shape the way we live. In other words, just as, as for me to say earlier, I don't want to know the specifics of when or how I'm going to die, because if I knew that, it would consume the way I think and act and make every decision on a positive note, as believers who know exactly what's going to happen when we die, how that's going to transpire, what comes next, it ought to consume the way we think and live and act. What you hope for shapes what you live for. That's the idea. And so what I want to do this morning as we walk through this text is very simply break in our, 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 our outline here into two parts. The first is, what do we hope for? What do we hope for? That's the first part of what I think he's saying here in this part of chapter 5. And then the second part is then, how does what we hope for, what, how does that hope, when we answer that question, how does it shape how we live? So if you're taking notes this morning, there's just two points. What we hope for and how that hope shapes what we live. All right? 
Let's look at the text again, and let's, let's begin with this first point. What we hope for. What we hope for. And verse 9 is key. Look again at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. But, you could add here, He has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's our hope, brothers and sisters? We are not destined for wrath. We are destined for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, that's your hope. That's your destiny. That's what's next. Salvation. So what are we saved from? That's an important question for us to consider. And this is what Paul is, is talking about here as he, as he speaks to the church about this coming day of the Lord. We talk about the fact that we're saved from sin. And that's true, right? We are saved from sin. We're saved from the power of sin. Sin has no, no, no sway over us as believers and it has no consequence. The wages of sin is death. We're saved from sin, its power, and its consequences. But ultimately... What we're saved from is what happens on the other side of death in sin. Paul says it here. You're saved from the wrath of God. He says in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by Jesus' blood. This is a text that, that Adam read to us earlier. Therefore, now we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Look again at verses 2 and 3. This is what we looked at last week. This was the, this was the, 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 the destiny of those who are outside of Christ. Again, it says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, There's peace! There's security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. If Peter and Lydia are here this morning, they could tell us about that. And he says, and they will not escape. Again, it's what we looked at last week. The, the beginning verses of chapter 5 describe the day of the Lord. Capital D, the day of the Lord. The beginning of this chapter. And, and it's talking about judgment day. It's talking about the judgment that's coming at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we looked at some of the Old Testament passages, Jorge brought those to our attention last week, that talk about the day of the Lord, and quite frankly, they're scary. They're awful. They're, 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 they're terrible. If you're outside of the Lord, and the judgment of God rests on you, that day will not only come as a shock, as a surprise, but it'll come as a terror. Hebrews chapter 10 says it like this. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has 
outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And the author of Hebrews adds this, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's what we looked at last week. And it wasn't a touchy-feely sermon. right? It wasn't a feel-good message. It was sobering. And it was heavy. And at the end, I said, you know what? We, got, we, 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 need to, we need to hear that. We need to understand that. That needs to compel not just our, our own repentance, but our compassion. But I said we need to come back next week and hear the good news for the believer. And this is it. There's the good news for the Christian. Again, look at verses 4 and 5. But you are not in darkness, brothers. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light. You are children of the day. We are not of the night. We are not of the darkness. Now I want you to notice the contrast here between night and day. He talks about night and day. He talks about darkness and light. And this too picks up on biblical language that speaks of the night and day difference between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. That's why I titled the message this morning, The Night and Day Difference, right? There's a, there's a contrast between two kinds of people. There's, 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 there's all kinds of people in the world, but, but ultimately there's only two kinds of people in the world. There's those who are in Christ and those who are not. John MacArthur points out the spiritual night that engulfs unbelievers includes both an intellectual and a moral darkness. It's the intellectual darkness of ignorance on the one hand, and it's the moral darkness of sin on the other. Ignorance of God and holiness and what's right, and therefore the activity that then flows out of that ignorance, sin. Not knowing what's true, not doing what's right. And tragically, most people choose to remain in that darkness. The Scriptures are full of of that truth. Though the light shines in the darkness, the darkness did not comprehend it, John 1.5. As Jesus explained to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, He said, the light has come into the world. Yet men loved the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. To the Ephesians, Paul wrote, This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you, Christians, walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their hearts. That's Ephesians 4. So the Scriptures tell us that those who are not in Christ are living under the power 
of darkness. That's Ephesians 2. Under the domain of darkness, Colossians 1. And are destined for the eternal darkness of hell. Matthew 8, 2 Peter 2, Jude 3, Jude 6. But you are not in darkness, brothers. You are not in darkness, sisters. This is what Paul wants us to understand about what it means to be in Christ. All of that scary, true, and terrible business about the judgment of God will not land on you. Because you're not in darkness. You are not in darkness. Jesus said, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, verse 12. And you, he says, are the light of the world. Matthew 5, 14. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness in Colossians 1 to the kingdom of God's Son. We are those who walk in the light as He is in the light. 1 John 1, 7. And so Paul says here again in verse 5, For you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night. We are not of the darkness. And so I want to tell you this this morning, Christians. That is positional. Okay? That's what you are in Christ. This is your current and eternal status. It's positional. And it's because of, not you, but Him. It's because of Christ. Look at verse 9 again and keep reading into chapter, or to verse 10 in 1 Thessalonians 5. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, whether you're alive or whether you're dead, we might live with Him. Christ died for us. In what way, you say? Christ died for us means this. It means He bore our sins on His own body when He hung on the cross. That sin that separated you, that sin that that marked you as dark, Christ took it from you, bore it himself, and died with it. He put it to death, 1 Peter 2, so that I might now bear his divine righteousness. It's amazing. I might bear his perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Died for me means he died in place of me. He died the death I should have died. In my place, condemned He stood. Punished instead of me. Bearing wrath. God's wrath so that I would not. So that you would not. That's amazing. And not only will I not bear wrath, I will be granted to live with Jesus forever. That's my destiny. Not wrath, but Christ who loved us 
who gave himself for us, destined for salvation. No wrath, only Jesus because of Jesus. You know what I say to that? I say, amen. You say amen to that? Listen, I'm going to get a little black church on you here. Turn to your neighbor and say, I mean, turn to your neighbor and say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now turn to your other neighbor. Turn to your other neighbor and say, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen, right? Now say with me, say with me, we will reign with him forever. Amen. Hallelujah, amen. And because this is what we are in Christ, brothers and sisters, listen to me and grab onto this because of this is what we are in Christ, we have hope. We have hope. And the hopeful knowledge of how we will therefore exit this world in Christ absolutely should shape how we live today. And so that's our second point. This hope shapes what we live for. Everything we've read so far has had nothing to do with the Thessalonians and everything to do with what Jesus has done for them. And we can say that's true for us too, right? Everything we've said so far, nothing to do with us and what we've achieved or accomplished or deserved or earned. Everything to do with what Jesus has done for us. So what does Paul say next? Verse 6. So then, right? This is what you are. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. He says, so then, because he's saying, look, because of our positional righteousness in Christ, the exhortation here is to respond in active participation. You didn't, you didn't do this. You didn't make yourself this way. He made you this way so that you would now respond in active participation in what you are. So then, let us not sleep as others, as unbelievers do, but let us keep awake and be sober because that's what you now are in Christ. You're different. Notice here that there's an intellectual and a moral exhortation, right? He's saying, he's saying, be awake. That's sort of a, an intellectual thing, like the, the alertness, the lights are on, right? And then the be sober is, and he talks about it here in a, in a moral context. Don't, you know, don't, drunkenness happens at night. I don't think he's, he's trying to specifically key in on drunkenness as a Thessalonian problem. Maybe he is. I don't know. But I think the, the application here is there's a moral outflow because of who you are. And now you're, you're woke. You, you live different. 
And so here's what he says about that living different. In verse 8, he says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Here's, here's the act of participation. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. All right? So here's what it means to be awake and sober. You put on something. You put on a helmet of salvation and a breastplate here of faith and love, and I, and I, I want to say this. I think there's an outlook and an outflow that he's talking about here. There's an outlook and there's an outflow. Here's the outlook. The helmet of salvation guards my mind and the breastplate of faith and love guards my heart. My mind and my heart are guarded in Christ Jesus. How? In terms of outlook, I'm reminded in my mind, I'm, 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 I'm told and I tell myself that I am saved. That I am in the light. I'm not in the darkness. And so what does a helmet do? It protects you from blows. And what are the blows that are going to come? The blows are going to come in the form of lies and temptations to tell you you're not what you think you are. Christ hasn't really done that in you. This, this isn't you. The shame, that's you. Put the helmet of shame on you. And you're reminded by that, that helmet that, that, that takes those blows and, and bounces them off. No, I am saved. I'm destined for salvation because of what Jesus did. It's not because of what I did or deserve. That's a helmet of protection of my mind. It helps the way I think, right? And then, I, and then I wear this, this breastplate on my, on my heart of faith and love that, that again, it guards, it guards not just the way I think and my intellect, but it guards my feeling and my will. It, it guards my soul. I am loved by God. There is nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. My faith is certain faith. And so though arrows come and though, though assaults may come and sometimes even my own, my own hands want to beat against that armor and tell myself lies, I'm protected by what's true when I put on and I'm reminded then to actively put on, no, I'm saved and I'm loved and my faith is certain. Now most commentators will point out here and in other passages that talk about armor, because there's a few of them, that armor is defensive. And what I just described is defensive activity, right? I'm repelling attacks by protecting myself with what's true. But I want to say this, because I think it's, it's really important and it's obvious if you think about it, armor is never strictly meant for passive defense, you think about a soldier who puts on a helmet and breastplate and goes out to the battlefield. He, he, he's not doing this. He's not kneeling down and saying, all right, come hit me. And then sort of like, all right, I survived it. Right? No, he's putting that on knowing that I'm going to get hit and, I, and there, there, there's defense needed, but I'm not here to be a defensive pawn. I'm here to be on the offense too. Right? So there's always action involved in battle. That's why I say there's not just an outlook, there's outflow. There's outflow. And here's where things get really interesting. We could do a whole study on this picture of armor in verse 8. 
because the language is employed in several places throughout the Bible. But it takes root in Isaiah 59, verse 17. And the picture there, get this, is of God putting on this armor. And this is what it says. Isaiah 59, 17, it simply says this. He put on, he, the Lord, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. First of all, the Lord doesn't need defense. But he puts on righteousness, it says, as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Now get this because it's important. The righteousness that God puts on as a breastplate is a response to the lack of justice and righteousness in the world. So if you look at that passage in Isaiah 59, and you look at the verses right before it says he puts on this breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation, this is what is said about why he's doing it. It says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. In other words, if you run from evil, it's running after you. The Lord saw this, it says, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So he's saying there's no justice here and nobody's standing up for it. Nobody's doing righteousness here. I'm going to put on my armor of righteousness and salvation and he Acts. That's a scene of judgment. The other notable mention for armor that you might have been thinking of already from Paul is in Ephesians chapter 6. The armor of faith, if you were a little kid in church Sunday school, you probably dressed up in it. And there he says the breastplate that believers are to put on is one of, again, righteousness. Here in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, faith and love is the breastplate. Elsewhere, righteousness. And I think they're linked. They're linked. Faith is an outlook. Love is an outflow. Right? Love is an outflow. It's action. It's doing something. It's loving people, it's justly and righteously treating people. As well as vertically loving God. But that's the, those, are the, those are the great commandments, right? We love God and we love others. And so I think this is the idea. I think this is the idea. God's desire for His redeemed people is for them to live like He does. That's why He puts on the armor of justice justice and righteousness and the helmet of salvation. And then he exhorts us in the New Testament, you put it on too. Live like me. I think that's the idea here. The, The wrath of God is poured out on the children of darkness because they fail to live like him. 
That's their rebellion. God, we don't want to look like you. We don't want to live like you. And God says, I will judge that. That is, that is wickedness. My people, however, you're not that way. I've saved you from that kind of thinking and acting. Now, live like me. Once in rebellion, now in reflection. I want to go back to Amos chapter 5. I'll put it on the screen. At least try to. Amos chapter 5, which Jorge read to us last week. And again, he read to us Amos 5 in the context of uh, the, the day of the Lord. This is one of those Old Testament passages that we looked at that talks about the judgment of God for the, the enemy of God on the day of the Lord. It's a judgment against the people who are supposed to look like God, but don't. And particularly here, he's actually talking to his own people, Israel, rebellious Israel. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now, I get that if you're talking to those who are not supposed to be your people. But when you're talking to your people who are saying, yeah, we're looking forward to the coming of Messiah. And he says, "Uh, you might want to rethink that. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. It's not the day Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? This is kind of surprising when you go, you're thinking, God, that's what you said to like, you know, the Babylonians. Why are you saying that to us? Then you get to verse 21 and you find out exactly why he's saying it to his people. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But... Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. David Platt, just this week at the T4G conference in Louisville, gave a really good sermon on this text. Which was kind of cool because I just, you know, listened to Jorge read it and then I got to hear someone preach on it. And, and, uh, he boiled it down to three key things that God was displeased with in his people. The first one is this. They were eagerly anticipating future salvation while they were conveniently denying present sin. Eagerly anticipating future salvation while presently denying current sin. Second thing, they were indulging in worship while they were ignoring injustice. Indulging in worship, 
God, here's our songs, here's our offerings. And he's saying, yuck. Because where's the justice? Where's the right living? Third, they were carrying on their religion while they were refusing to repent. And this is something you have to kind of understand as you read through the text. But, but, but you, as, you, as you look back in, in Amos 5 and you see that there are grain offerings and there are peace offerings and you see that there are burnt offerings, you, you, you notice there's a glaring omission. There's no sin offering. Now listen, I want to dwell on that for a minute. Because I want you to notice in 1 Thessalonians... And this is, this is just noticing kind of the whole sermon series, the whole time that we've been in the book. Notice that, that Paul speaks with great confidence, great confidence about the believers in Thessalonica having love for one another and their neighbors. He says, oftentimes, he says over and over this phrase, just as you're doing, he's, he's affirming them. This, this is what, what God has done. This is the, this is the outflow of what God, and it's just as you're doing, you guys are doing this. He says that to them regularly throughout the book. And I want to say this morning that, that, that as much as we can affirm that Paul sees it in them, I'm not so sure we should be quick to claim the same glowing endorsement for ourselves. And I want to challenge us on this. And here's where I'm coming from. I've been struck by two things over the, the past couple of weeks that I've, I've been trying to reconcile with, with each other. The first is that, I, again, I listened to Jorge's sermon last week intently. Uh, it, it was, I thought, again, it was heavy, right? It was, but it, but it was, it was like, it was powerful. It was the reminder of the, the day of the Lord, which, which I'll admit in my own thinking, sometimes I, all I think about is, hey, Jesus is coming back and I'm going to heaven and it's going to be awesome, right? And I forget that it's going to be a terrible day. It's going to be a, a, an awful day judgment on the world when that day comes and so i'm reminded of that and as he as he's quoting jorge is quoting last week from from old testament passages that speak of this dreadful terrible dark day against the enemies of god he says things like isaiah 13 behold the day of the lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it and in that, in that passage there, that was Isaiah 13, uh, there's a specific reference uh, against the people of Babylon. And then we got to Jeremiah 46 and Ezekiel uh, 30, where, again, Jorge read those, and there was a specific mention against Egypt. I'm going to come and I'm going to deliver Israel and I'm going to destroy Egypt. I'm going to destroy Babylon. He looked at other passages. I'm going to destroy Edom and destroy the Philistines. And, and here's, where, here's what I'm wrestling with. I will admit that for me, as a modern Westerner, this kind of wrathful judgment against people kind of smacks against my, my tolerant sensibilities a little bit. It makes me a little uncomfortable. And I wonder if it makes you a little uncomfortable too. God's going to wipe out Egypt. The second thing I've been struck by is that I've been reading some theology from some of our brothers and sisters in Latin America and in sub-Saharan Africa over this same time, this, this last couple of weeks. And there's something very striking about their eschatological hope. Very striking. And this is what it is. They rejoice over these decrees. 
they rejoice over decrees of judgment against dominant world power. And that's what Babylon and Egypt and Edom and the Philistines represent, by the way, right? When, you, when we read that now in our Old Testament, don't, you shouldn't be thinking about the nation that you know today of Egypt. What it represents is that at, at that time, we're talking about the dominant world power. Just as when we read Israel here, we, we shouldn't be thinking about the nation that you know today necessarily, but it's the people of God. And so, and so our Latin American and sub-Saharan African brothers and sisters that I've been reading, they're rejoicing about when they, when they read things like this. And I think it's because they're people who know and who have known for a long time what it means to be oppressed and victimized by dominant world power. They've been harmed by rampant injustice and pervasive unrighteousness for generations. And they long for the coming day when Jesus will come and crush the oppressors once and for all and finally make it right. And they cry out. They're crying out, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I'm hearing that from them. So I said I'm trying to sort of reconcile these experiences of mine together, this my own kind of reaction and, and their reaction. And, and perhaps, and, and, and please hear this, perhaps if I, as a, as a modern Westerner, don't have that same longing for justice, it might be because the decrees of coming judgment from God on power actually hit me in the nose. Perhaps it's because we are Babylon. We are Egypt. We're, we're living and we're breathing and we're finding comfort in the dominant world powers. The world system. And perhaps I don't just live in Babylon, but Babylon lives in me. So I need to hear what God has to say about the kind of religion He despises. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. So I think we need to hear that. And we need to hear that, and then we need to hear this again. Are you still in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6? So then, church, let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who are drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. What does it mean to be awake and sober? 
it means we don't live like the world, but we live like Jesus. It means we put on armor and we take on the outlook of a soldier. And we act. We love God and we love one another. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing, he says to the Thessalonians. May that be true of us. I think to love one another in such a way as to expectantly anticipate the coming day of the Lord with hope is to identify with God and to identify with others who see the system of the world as an enemy. We don't love the world. We love God. And we love one another. We have to identify with those who find the world system that we live in and breathe in and, 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 and find our comfort in. We have to identify with those who find that to be oppressive. Whether that's a spiritual oppression, an economic depression, a, a, a racial or ethnic oppression, it's all related, right? It's all about the contrast between the system of the world and the kingdom of God. It's about a night and day difference. I'm going to close with this. I'll put it up on the screen. But, but Jesus says this to us. He says, he says if, if Jesus were a, a 2018, you know, kind of contemporary of ours, he would say, look, you want to be woke? Here's woke. Matthew 25. This is the, the final judgment. This is Jesus talking about the day of the Lord. And he says this, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, by the way, this is on the screen. You can follow it there or you just want to close your eyes and listen. This is the words of Jesus. Just listen. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and before Him will be gathered all the nations and He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, he'll say, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you in sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it, to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed 
into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So then, so then, let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is the mark of a sheep and not a goat. Father, we pray that as you come, you'd find us faithful. I'm struck, Lord, as I, as I read Jesus' words about, about what it's like when you come back, when the, when the Master returns, and, and will He find us awake and alert? And I don't think that just means that we're supposed to be standing and staring upwards all the time. In fact, I know that because when the disciples were standing and staring upwards as Jesus ascended, they were told by the angels, look, He's coming back down. What are you standing here for? And so, Lord, I, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to be found awake means to be found diligently doing the things that you would do and have called us to do. So help us, Lord, as a church and as people not to live like the world because we're not of the world. And thank you, praise you that we're not of this world. We are in Christ. We are new people. We're of the day. No darkness, no wrath. Help us to live like it. Help us to love like you love. Help us to pursue righteousness and justice like you pursue righteousness and justice. Help us to not only believe in our salvation, but to proclaim that salvation to the lost. Make us a people who are found doing the things of the Master for your glory and because we were bought to look like you. Amen. And come, Lord Jesus.